Hello, and welcome to episode 31 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a freelance writer, criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. In a few minutes, we'll get to my interview with Julian Adler, co-author of the book Start Here, A Roadmap to Reducing Mass Incarceration. But first, the news. Another busy week, so I didn't get as much written as I would have liked, which is almost always the case. I did get my 70th recap of Orange is the New Black written, including a brief Twitter conversation between myself and the real Piper, Piper Kerman, that is. One other thing, I'm working as an independent contractor for Cut 50 for the next few months to help get the federal First Step Act over the finish line. If you listen to this podcast, you know I'm a longtime proponent of the passage of the bill, so it's not exactly a stretch for me to start helping people try to get it passed. Uh, Okay, let's get to this week's interview. Julian Adler is the Director of Policy and Research at the Center for Court Innovation in New York City. He was previously the director of the Red Hook Community Justice Center in Brooklyn, New York, and the lead planner of Brooklyn Justice Initiatives. So lots of incredible accomplishments. But what drew me to his work was a mutual friend pushing me in the direction of his new book, Start Here, A Roadmap to Reducing Mass Incarceration. Julian, welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thank you. So you have a co-author too. You should probably mention that. (laughs) So who did you do your work with? So Start Here is uh, a book that I wrote with Greg Berman, who's the uh, director of the Center for Court Innovation. Great. I often find that uh, reading these bios don't do a particularly good job of explaining people's stories. How did you end up doing the work uh, that you're doing now? So I was drawn to um, the Center for Court Innovation um, as a lawyer and clinical social worker very interested in, again, this was about a decade ago, um, the work that the Center for Court Innovation was doing around alternatives to incarceration um, and looking to change the way that courts did business, mostly in New York City, but also nationally. Um, And then, so I originally started my work in Red Hook on the operations side, and then over the years have moved um, into the national criminal justice reform space um, and into the worlds of policy and research. Uh, I was born in New York City myself. Can you share some of the things that you've been a part of building in New York, or at least a few of the things you've worked on that you're most proud of? Absolutely. So um, as you mentioned in the opening I was the director of the Red Hook Community Justice Center in Brooklyn, New York, which is a multi-jurisdictional community court. My first job in Red Hook, however, was the clinical director. Um, and in that role, um, I um, did a lot of work to figure out how best to um, create good interdisciplinary collaboration between social workers, attorneys, and judges. And in particular, um, at the time, um, began working very um, assiduously on trauma-informed care and identifying opportunities um, to make drug treatment and other forms of intervention for criminal court clients more trauma-informed, which at the time was not necessarily um, as widely practiced or understood as it is today. So it was a very meaningful clinical opportunity, and I do think it enhanced outcomes in court. 
Um, while I was um, at Red Hook, I had the privilege of serving on the planning team for Newark Community Solutions, um, which is the first community court in New Jersey, and had the opportunity to work very closely um, with the team on developing court operations and clinical operations to, again, support alternatives to jail and particularly in Newark to fines and fees. And then, um, as you mentioned in your opening, I, while still in Red Hook, had the opportunity to serve as the lead planner for Brooklyn Justice Initiatives, which in a nutshell was an attempt to take the Red Hook approach, which we were doing in a community court setting and scale it up to the downtown criminal court serving all of Brooklyn on Skimmerhorn Street. Um, and that was working very closely to embed opportunities, both pre-trial and post-sentencing um, for defendants to avoid jail and to be engaged in meaningful intervention. And I've also had the privilege beyond New York of assisting with the launch of the MacArthur Foundation Safety and Justice Challenge, which is a national initiative looking to reduce the use of jail and change the conversation around jails in the United States. And then in the process, have been able to work on multiple national initiatives around criminal justice, debt reform, right to counsel, and currently looking to see if we can find ways to um, expand alternatives to jail and prison for individuals charged with violent crime. So, you know, I think, you know, the problems are enormous and formidable, and I'm proud and excited to be part of, you know, many efforts to attempt to reduce and eventually, you know, end mass incarceration in the United States. So you talked about uh, trauma-informed care and talking about alternative sentencing. Uh, how have those conversations, how did you start to initiate the conversation about making people who've come into contact with our justice system seem uh, or, or appear more complex than just perpetrator or victim? Well, it's interesting. Um, it's... <sighs> I'll say I'll I'll tell you about it and then if it's too in the in the weeds or you know feel free to redirect me. Um sure. it's 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 a really interesting story. So when I arrived in Red Hook, what was interesting about the Red Hook Community Justice Center was that it was a community court but that essentially functioned also in ways like a drug court and a mental health court. It was a very holistic approach to alternatives to incarceration. Essentially, social workers were assessing defendants often prior to arraignment. And because the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, the presiding judge Alex Calabrese and the Brooklyn Legal Aid Society were working collaboratively and with, you know, a shared sense of mission and purpose, um, were really diverting a broad range of defendants to a broad range of things. The one thing that I did early on as clinical director was revamped the assessment, partly because that's part of the fun of being a clinical director is you get to kind of put your own imprimatur on practice. And also, I was concerned that there weren't questions about trauma, which at the time was not, um, not particularly surprising, but I felt like we could do better. And what was surprising, though, was 
we started to add a few very open-ended questions about trauma and victimization, and we juxtaposed them with questions about substance use. And what we thought was pretty astonishing was A, the defendants were answering the questions in a forthcoming way. That was not something that we expected, and we made it clear that that was not something that was required, particularly for sensitive questions about childhood abuse. What we also noticed and were struck by was many, many defendants would disclose histories of trauma and victimization and then make the connection to first use of substances, typically during that period of abuse or maltreatment in childhood um, as a strategy for coping and surviving. This kind of leads me to the book. Um, so one of the first things that you talk about in the book is changing people's notions of what you call procedural justice or the notion that people are less likely to comply with authorities that they don't find legitimate. Can you talk about how you've seen notions of procedural justice change and some of the success stories that you discuss in the book? Yeah. So, you know, at a very basic level, the idea of procedural justice is that if you that process matters as well as outcome, and that typically practitioners in courts, whether they're judges or attorneys or administrators, are very focused on outcomes um, and efficiencies, and that process matters. And what we found, or what research has found, is that. Um, if defendants are treated with respect and dignity, have voice in the process and a genuine understanding of what's happening in the proceedings, how laws being applied to fact, how certain decisions are being made, um, that it, that they tend to see the court process as more legitimate and are more inclined to accept the decisions of a court, um, both in the short term and the longer term. What we've seen is that when judges in particular practice procedural justice, not only does it change the way that defendants interact with judges, it also changes the way judges interact with defendants and ultimately feel about their role in the process, that everyone feels better and feels more connected to the work and a deeper sense of mission when they're treating defendants like human beings respectfully and taking the time to really explain and be accountable for the proceedings that are happening. And what we've seen is that not only does it improve outcomes, but it really does reanimate um, the courtroom and, you know, could, could well be described as one of the most effective culture change strategies we've seen in practice. And if, when we think about the project of ending mass incarceration in the United States, it's certainly not just about culture change, but that's a critical component of changing the way that we rely on jails and prisons. It's changing the culture of the criminal justice system and starting with procedural justice makes a lot of sense. And so what were some of the success stories that you've, you discuss in the book of changes in procedural justice? So two great examples would be judge Victoria Pratt, who sat in in the Newark municipal courthouse and Newark community solutions and judge Alex Calabrese who sat in Red Hook, um, if you've if you've observed Judge Pratt or today, if you were to walk into the Red Hook Community Justice Center and observe Judge Calabrese, um, you would feel like you were seeing a court process that's quite unfamiliar. You would see a judge who's making eye contact with defendants, taking the time to hear their perspective on their case and their life. 
offering opportunities to participate in programming rather than jail um, and what you would see are good outcomes. So in Red Hook's case, um, in 2013, the National Center for State Courts published an independent evaluation and found statistically significant reductions in recidivism in Red Hook compared to the same types of cases, the process in the downtown court. And what the, the best way that the evaluators could explain that finding was that the Red Hook Community Justice Center really embedded and embodied those principles of procedural justice. Work by, by law professor Tom Tyler and other scholars have found similar results in their work that when you see respectful treatment, voice in the courtroom, um, a clear sense of understanding and transparency that you tend to see better outcomes, both in terms of compliance with court orders, as well as recidivism in the future. So when I hear this, I'm both excited and a little bit skeptical. I think about communities like Ferguson or parts of Detroit, where changes in judges' attitudes towards defendants and maybe fancying up the courthouse uh, maybe having more community com- uh, participation might not reach the deep distrust that exists in these communities. Don't get me wrong. It can't hurt. But can you speak a little bit to my cynicism? I think your cynicism is important. And I think what we have seen and actually um, in some research that the Center for Court Innovation um, will be releasing soon that we conducted in Newark, New Jersey and in Cleveland What that research suggests is that, to your point, procedural justice can't just be a something that happens in the courtroom, that you really need to take a comprehensive approach. You need to see it in policing. You need to see it in the courtroom. You need to see it in the way that corrections officials and probation officials um, do their jobs. And that you're right, even if a defendant experiences procedural justice in the courtroom, that not isn't necessarily enough of a dosage to somehow um, eclipse what may have happened during the arrest or to um, overcome whatever their experience might be on probation. So I think the way to describe it would be we need to take a multi-sectoral or system-wide approach to procedural justice to really see the benefits of the approach. But I'm optimistic in the face of your cynicism, in part because there is research that's emerging that suggests that police departments have been responsive to training in procedural justice. Um, And when I couple that with what's been our experience, that practitioners who practice procedural justice tend to feel better about themselves and the work they're doing, I think it's an actionable culture change strategy. But again, to your point... I think we're only scratching the surface of what needs to be done. And I agree that if it's an isolated incident of procedural justice and every other experience or encounter with the just system is the opposite, it's not going to be effective in the long haul. It needs to really um, become the norm and a ubiquitous experience from the moment of arrest or police contact through the resolution of a case. And in the event that there's a community supervision component, it needs to suffuse that experience as well. Let's talk a little bit about that community supervision that you talk about in the book. Um, I think with, you know, we talked about police and we talked about judges, uh, but there is a model of kind of community supervision that's happening in a lot of places across the country right now, and that's massive electronic surveillance. 
uh, and police presence. What's your kind of alternative vision when you talk about communities? Well, I'm glad you brought it up. I think that um, the same way that I don't think um, it was necessarily um, clear to a lot of folks that jails are a major driver of mass incarceration, it's also not entirely clear that not only community supervision, but um, technical violations of probation and revocation and reincarceration based on those violations are also a major driver of incarceration in the United States, and that we need to think hard about understanding and responding to the problem. In the short run, um, there are strategies that we and other reformers point to that are good places to start. Um, one would be, as I alluded to, re-examining um, how probation officials respond to technical violations. Just to be clear, a technical violation means that no laws were broken. There wasn't a new arrest. Um, a technical violation might be a missed appointment, um, a failed drug test, um, struggles with compliance with other conditions of release or conditions of probation. And what we typically see is a very quick and punitive response. Um, technical violation, revocation, reincarceration. And that what we advocate for, though again, it's complicated and jurisdiction specific, would be graduated sanctions, um, rethinking the approach to technical violations, and with that, changing the, the 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 texture of the interactions between probation officials and the individuals assigned to their caseloads. That we think that if those interactions are based on mutual respect, if they're based in empathy, understanding, a desire not to violate individuals, but to support individuals in staying in the community, that that paradigm shift coupled with some technical strategies like here are some other responses to a violation such as rethinking the treatment plan rethinking supervision um you know taking a closer look at where um community supports might be lacking there are all sorts of opportunities to avoid reincarceration and then the other piece and there's been concern of late about a phenomenon that's been described as e-incarceration or e-carceration, which is the use of electronic monitoring um, for individuals in the community. And I can say that the Center for Court Innovation is in the process of trying to, though it's the early stages, to think about are there other ways to offer judges assurance that individuals will be safe and will um, comply with court orders if they're released to the community, either on parole or probation, but doing away with um, what's often uh, a draconian um, and oppressive technology. We're in the early stages of thinking those things through, but in the immediate, reducing incarceration on technical violations is a very good place to start, as well as thinking about procedural justice as the framework for how a probation official approaches the work with individuals assigned to their caseload. So another, uh, we've talked about all the official functions, but I think another big part of the book is the notion that the community, qua community, should take a role in prevention. Is that fair? Yes. Um, we emphasize in the book um, that the place to start when we're thinking about reducing, ending mass incarceration 
particularly with an eye toward the 53 plus percent of individuals who are behind bars on violent charges involving violence, whether the underlying behavior was violent, that what they've been charged and convicted of is a violent crime, that one of the best strategies is community-based crime prevention. By the time an individual finds themselves in front of a judge in most courtrooms in the United States, the idea that we'll be able to pursue an alternative to pretrial detention or incarceration on a violent felony offense is pretty low. Outside of New York and Los Angeles, <clears throat> most jurisdictions um, are skittish about nonviolent felonies and are often focused on diversion for misdemeanor level offenses. Um, we're working to change that. In the book, we make arguments based in social science for why alternatives to incarceration are very effective with more serious um, um, case presentations. We emphasize um, that there are programs out there doing effective work, but that's not the culture of reform at this moment in time in the United States. Most jurisdictions are focusing on misdemeanor level cases. So with that as our context, we think that reformers are wise to not start thinking at decision point one of arrest, which is a very typical way um, that we operate when we conceptualize intervention, but to think of point one as community-based crime prevention. In the book, we highlight models like cure violence, placemaking, our efforts in Brooklyn and the Bronx to... Um, prevent violence, to work with credible messengers in the community to disrupt violence, um, to mediate conflict before it escalates. Um, but we're just scratching the surface. And we think that there needs to be a deeper investment made by government, by philanthropy. Anyone interested in ending mass incarceration needs to make a deeper investment in community-based crime prevention. And in the process, by doing so, finding ways to reduce enforcement. Because if you think about it, and we mentioned this in the book, when you think about safe communities, you don't imagine police states with cops on every corner. You imagine communities that feel safe, where their eyes on the street, where citizens are looking out for each other, but not where there's a police officer in every corner. In order to get there, there needs to be programming in place to support those efforts and to reduce um, violent crime. Okay, which I think brings me to, a, I think, an important question as an interviewer that I need to ask. Uh, one of the ideas that seems to be uh, central to the book is the notion that we need jails, prisons, prosecutors, and police more or less as they exist now. And it's really a question of how much people believe in them. Uh a few weeks ago, I interviewed a prison abolitionist, and as crazy as that stance might seem, as I'm also kind of a reformer, many of the most comprehensive meta-analysis suggests that prisons and jails, even accounting for incapacitation, create more public safety problems than they solve. So could you speak a little bit to why we need to preserve the traditional system and recreate uh, faith in the traditional system? So I would quibble a bit with that framing. I think that um, at at, at 30,000 feet, I think that we're making several arguments. Um, one is certainly to look to restore a sense of legitimacy to the criminal justice system. But just to be clear, 
Um, we don't think that's possible. And I hope it doesn't appear, appear that we're making the case that it's possible without fundamentally changing, if not transforming the system itself. Um, that said, it's a fair point that we're not making an abolitionist argument to shutter all prisons and jails um, in the United States. So I can sort of speak to that a bit. Um, but to be clear, I would not want the book to be read as if only we make people feel better about the criminal justice system, we'll sort of keep the status quo more or less at least what I think we were trying to articulate, hopefully we did a decent job of doing so, is that it requires more than that. Um, and that even attempting to legitimize the system means that the system has to change and has to change pretty dramatically. The one thing I'll say, though, is, you know, it's in the title, Start Here. This book, and perhaps, you know, this is not our last word on the subject, is meant to be where to start, but it's not meant to be an exhaustive vision of where you end up. This is the idea here is you don't need to wait around to start working on reducing the use of incarceration or beginning to think about system change and ideally transformation. So perhaps you could say that we're not presenting exhaustive solutions as much as we're presenting here are the first steps you take toward exhaustive solutions. But I'd want to think about that a little bit more. Um, you're right. The position in the book, the position of the organization, and as you alluded to, the position of most reformers is not the total abolition of jails and prisons. The argument that we make in the book and that I'll reiterate here is that we're we haven't come close to realizing just how dramatically we can reduce our reliance on these institutions. And I guess I would argue um, that once we've reached the point where we are using jails and prisons as parsimoniously as possible in a way that we're seeing um, the right outcomes, that we're not seeing upticks in crime, that we're realizing what we argue are the benefits to public safety as well as to individuals and communities of decarceration, I think then we might revisit the debate. But it's rare that I encounter individuals who take the position that for the most serious violent crimes where individuals are intentionally causing harm to others um, where they wouldn't see a benefit of incapacitation. But to be clear, as I hope comes across in the book, we think we're so far at this point from realizing how far we can go toward limiting the use of jails and prisons for only folks who pose that kind of imminent risk to society that it feels premature to debate, you know, some reform versus totalizing reform versus abolition because we haven't even really scratched the surface of just bringing the jail population and the prison populations down to the point where we can sort of know what we're dealing with. What would the population in jails and prisons look like if everyone who could be safely and effectively diverted to a community-based alternative was? I think when we get to that point, and I think that's the fight on our hands now, then I think we revisit the debate about abolition once we know what we're really talking about. I think why it's hard to have that debate now, and we do make this point in the book, 
is that a lot of individuals who are charged with violent crimes, if you do a searching inquiry into the facts of the case, are not the individuals that you would think should be behind bars. And so once we figure out how to get all those folks out, then I think we can revisit that debate. It just feels premature to me. Okay, that seems fair. Uh so, but part of this starts in the kind of, and I think the book covers this too, in uh, what happens with prosecutors. And one of the things that you all suggest is that prosecutors don't have faith yet in the alternatives to incarceration. Uh, I know, for instance, that John Pfaff uh, thinks that this is also the result of an, a system of incentives that reward convictions instead of outcomes. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I think that, you know, Pfaff, hits the nail on the head in that um, culture change in prosecutors' offices is um, enormously difficult. We are seeing um, a new generation of prosecutors who are running on more progressive reform-oriented platforms, but we're also seeing critique in the news media and other outlets of those same prosecutors for not necessarily moving as quickly or as clearly in the direction of decarceration. And I agree with the frame that you offered that in order to change the behavior of line attorneys, not just their principles, the incentives need to be there, the support needs to be there, so that if promotions in an office are based on convictions, um, you're not going to see the same behavior change as if you know the number of cases diverted to treatment, the number of cases where you are able to avoid the use of money bail, the number of cases where you are able to resolve a situation without the potential collateral damage of short or longer term incarceration, then you're really going to start to see change. So I do think there is an onus on prosecutors, elected DAs, um, to create those kinds of policies and make sure that those policies are communicated to attorneys coming into the office and who are serving as line attorneys. And until that happens, I do think we're going to be slow to see progress. The only thing I would add is that while I think prosecutors are a big piece of this, I also think judges are a big piece of this. And I, I would argue and I don't think this is particularly controversial, that judges also play a very powerful gatekeeping function, sometimes over the objections of the prosecutor as to who goes to jail pre-trial versus who's sentenced to jail or prison, and that what we need to see in the days ahead are more supportive resources, national networks, opportunities for like-minded judges to receive the training, the support, the tools they need to change practice and often to change practice without the consent and cooperation of the prosecutor. It's a courageous thing for a judge to take a risk on a case that his or her colleagues might not take. It's even more courageous when it's over the stated recorded objections of the prosecutor because that judge knows that if the case results in a bad outcome, a tragic outcome, It'll be that judge's face on the front page of the paper and that judge's job in jeopardy. So I think we need to really see more work to galvanize judges to be agents of reform um, and to really create those kinds of resources and networks for newer judges. So what we what you're really talking about is electoral pr pressures in a lot of ways. 
Uh, and we've seen both in terms of prosecutors, as you mentioned in the news, et cetera, and what judges most recently in the Persky case, that uh, there is a lot of uh, danger for prosecutors and judges to take these stands. But at the same time in the book, you mentioned that an increasing number of Americans now know someone who's been arrested, jailed, or put in prison. So how do, in your experience, we get from point A to point B here? Um, <clears throat> if I had a, if, if, if I was able to knock this question out of the park, I would, I would, I would definitely, um, be a better reformer than I think I am at this point. Um, I think all of us would be better if we had an answer to this question. But, so here are some, here are some preliminary thoughts. Um, and again, I think we could, we could, we could chew on that question for, for, for many days, but I, I do think a starting point is offering judges not just the tools they might need to make more informed assessments of individuals and to better understand the various ways, the various options they have. So, for example, um, we early in the conversation, we discussed trauma and an experience that I had um, in introducing trauma-informed care into, at the time, the sort of very drug treatment-dominated paradigm of court-based intervention was it offered judges a way to understand treatment failure or relapse. Because what we saw, for example, was judges inclined to send defendants who were struggling with substance use to residential treatment facilities. That seemed like the gold standard. And then we're surprised to see individuals cycling through those programs almost, almost at the same rate they were cycling through jails. When we were able to provide judges with information about the role of trauma, both um, in substance use and the treatment thereof, and when judges were able to see a different set of outcomes with the right treatment, judges are then more comfortable offering alternatives to defendants, not only with more serious criminal histories or records, but also more ser more histories of treatment failure. I think from that, we could extrapolate the following. If judges were offered training, support, and resources to make nuanced, case-specific decisions about alternatives to incarceration, they would feel better and more confident in those decisions, and that would mitigate some of what we call the New York Post risk that kind of hangs like a specter over judges sitting in arraignments in New York City and most other jurisdictions. The other piece which I mentioned is while we're starting to see efforts to create community and networks for progressive prosecutors, fair and just prosecution is a fabulous example of that. We haven't seen the same thing for judges yet. We haven't seen networks, conferences, um, other meetings that are specifically designed to create space for peer support, networking, idea generation for judges who are trying to be more decarcerative, more progressive on criminal justice reform than their colleagues. So I think we also need to see that. So I think better resources and training coupled with more support, I'm not suggesting that's going to solve the problem. But again, going back to the title of our book, Start Here, that is a mighty fine place to start, and I think it would be incredibly impactful. The other thing I have to say um, is we also need to find ways to combat what is a completely fallacious logic. The idea that 
as you mentioned earlier, the idea that prisons and jails make communities safer, right? The idea that that short-term jail stay that a judge opted to avoid was somehow responsible or would have prevented the serious crime that came later. It's fallacious reasoning. We know that jails are chaotic, traumatic, often violent environments. We know they're accelerants of human misery. We know that individuals who enter jail with a series of problems typically leave with those problems and risk factors exacerbated often by a factor of 10 to 100. We know that prisons are similarly not designed to be the rehabilitative institutions that we often mythologize or hear others mythologize. So the argument that a judge was somehow responsible for a violent act because he, she, or they chose not to incarcerate an individual with a complicated and difficult life and a complicated and difficult history of involvement with the just system, it's a logical fallacy. It's post hoc ergo propter hoc. It confuses chronology with causality. And until we can find ways to combat that professionally, as well as in the public imagination, I worry we're going to be on this treadmill of blaming judges when they make the right decision. And unfortunately, their tragic consequences, which are not created by the judge, but the judge is in some kind of chain of events that led to them. Well, I think it could be argued that that's exactly what happened in the Persky case. And I wonder what happened differently in the areas of Brooklyn that you work that has allowed judges to have more, to feel more comfortable with the public in being uh, less uh, incarcerative. I I think the short answer is... Um, Again, you know, shout out to FAF. I think the story of alternatives to incarceration in Brooklyn, while there are a lot of major players that were supportive, you had and you have one of the most forward thinking, cutting edge district attorney's offices in the country in the Brooklyn DA's office. That was true then. It's true now with Eric Gonzalez. And when the prosecutor's office is committed to alternatives to incarceration and really being both smart and open to expanding those resources. They were one of the first offices that um, created opportunities for felony level diversion, creating plea mechanisms for deeper end cases that preserved the prosecutor's role as guardian of the community, but also allowing for alternatives to jail and prison that with that kind of prosecutor and that kind of district attorney, one, you could argue that somehow that's related to the zeitgeist or the culture of the community, right? Maybe that kind of prosecutor doesn't get elected outside of Brooklyn. Um, but I think that's a big piece of the story. I also think, you know, having city government, the mayor's office of criminal justice, the mayor has been consistently committed going on several decades in administrations. It's a story that we tell in the book and a story that we've told elsewhere. New York's success is an argument for radical incrementalism, that what we're seeing now with the jail population, as well as the crime rate at an all-time low, with plans to close Rikers Island, 
that didn't happen overnight. That was not a precipitous act of revolution. That was 20 plus years in the making. And it involved deep coordination as well as less coordination and just mutual goals and vision in many corners from government to the bench to the DA's office to community-based advocates to communities to nonprofits like ours and Vera and others. And so um, I guess this is my way of saying um, the prosecutor plays a big role, but that it does require a certain amount of buy-in from all corners. And often that takes some time. And only there do you create, I guess, the room for judges and prosecutors to take risks, to be courageous, to put their money where their mouth is in terms of their commitment to criminal justice reform without being overly concerned that every problem, mistake, or tragedy along the way will somehow be caused to revert to tough on crime and cause for them to be ousted from office. Yeah, uh, we've talked a pretty long time about different forms of diversion and alternative sentencing. Uh, I think we should probably raise the question of risk assessments too. I'm usually on your side on this, but I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate because there's a lot going on around this in the last few weeks. Your basic conclusion seems to be that risk assessments, while potentially biased, are not as biased as judicial discretion alone. Sonia Starr and others have suggested that the inherent bias could increase the percentage of people of color detained, prosecuted, and incarcerated. Why do you disagree? How much time do we have for this, for the podcast, man? I mean, as much as you want, man. <laughs> so, um, it's the this nice is, thing about podcasting. There's really not a <laughs> well. Get ready to edit. Um, okay. I uh, there's no way for me to give you a, a, a quick soundbite on this. So let me give you a sh- a relatively short take on how we're thinking about the problem as recently as this week, because this is um, a dynamic issue. It's evolving, and we're very involved nationally, locally. Um, intellectually, we're very engaged. Our researchers are very engaged. So let me attempt to frame it up in two respects. And then I let me just, uh, let me just say one thing, which is if anyone's not catching the reference, we're talking a lot about Senate Bill 10 in California, which is a bail reform bill. Right. And I think I don't want to, I, I don't want to go too far down the, the Senate Bill 10 rabbit hole. I will say that what you, yeah, I was asking a much no, more no, specific No, 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 but question. what I would say is, and it's an interesting point, and I'll make it and then I'll pivot right back to the question. What you see there, which has a lot of advocates and others concerned, not just advocates, but you know, reformers too, is the coupling of risk assessment with preventative detention. So that's sort of another issue. And that coupling is 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 not about risk assessment as much as about concerns about if you eliminate money bail and judges are given the ability to preventatively detain people where in the status quo they would have simply um you know um use money bail that's that's part of that concern there so i don't want to um oversimplify the debate there and make it just about r- risk assessment i would argue that it's about risk assessment, and it's about the coupling of risk assessment with what most people think is a very, very um, disconcerting option for judges to have, particularly in this country at this moment in this criminal justice system. Backing up to risk assessment, um, 
your question is about the debate, and it's a really important debate um, about racial bias and risk assessment and bias and risk assessment. And, um, you know, just as of this week, the debate's about race, the debate is also about age, the debate's about gender and how all these things um, are in the mix. I think a few points. One is that um, we need to work on this problem. So anyone, any reformer that is just sticking to risk assessment as it exists in the status quo without the recognition that we are far from a place of a perfected practice or fully developed science is in the wrong, in my opinion, and that we should be pushing everyone who's concerned about risk assessment, who's committed to risk assessment, who's agnostic, but trying to make sense of risk assessment to work more on this. No one should be declaring victory on risk assessment. And I would argue premature to say risk assessment should go out with the bathwater because we have seen its potential Though again, fraught with peril and definitely in need of improvement to potentially give judges a tool to reduce the use of incarceration. So part of what makes the debate about racial bias and risk assessment complicated and confusing is that there are at least two dimensions to the problem. The first is algorithmic bias or predictive bias. And what that refers to is does a risk assessment tool predict risk consistently um, re regardless of the race of the defendant? That will the tool predict risk in the same way um, across, you know, across racial groups um, when defendants are assessed? And then the second problem is disparate impact. And disparate impact is complicated on multiple levels. Um, and what I'll say is that even if you can create a tool that's carefully calibrated so that it predicts risk the same way, regardless of the defendant's race, that you still have a disparate impact problem. And I'll give two examples of disparate impact problems, but again, this isn't meant to be exhaustive, just you know, to give an illustration. The first would be in most jurisdictions, more people of color are arrested and prosecuted than white people. And therefore, even if the tool is predicting race consistently, <clears throat> more people of color are going to be subjected to the risk assessment full stop. So therefore, you're going to have more people of color being assessed for risk and being assessed as high risk just because the volume of people being assessed, the base rates are disparate between defendants of color um, and, and white defendants. The second problem that we have to grapple with is false positives. And that's complicated, but here's the very quick and hopefully digestible version. Risk assessment algorithms, even the best ones, are going to make bad predictions. They're predictive algorithms. They're not prophecy. There's no way to create the perfect algorithm. Human behavior can't be predicted that way. So any algorithm, regardless of the context, whether it's criminal justice or being used to predict the pattern of consumer behavior on the internet, is going to get it wrong some percentage of the time. In this case, a false positive would be... <clears throat> Someone assesses me for risk. 
I light up as high risk. And in fact, I go on to lead a life without any further contact with the criminal justice system. The algorithm got it wrong. It labeled me high risk. In fact, I, I, I have no subsequent involvement. The problem there is because the base rates are off that you have so many more people of color in most jurisdictions being subjected to the risk assessment in the first place because more people of color are being arrested and prosecuted, you're going to have more false positives for people of color because the more people that are assessed by the tool, the more opportunities there are for the tool to get the prediction wrong. And just to be clear, those problems don't fully exhaust all the reasons why this is hard. <clears throat> but what I've just articulated is com is confusing and is often conflated in the debate, in the discussion, and it raises different problems. If what we argue at the center and what we're finding in our research is that what you often need to think about, and this is not the end of the story, but a very important part of it, is it's not just about the risk assessment, it's about the policy environment in which you're implementing the risk assessment. And what we think is important is to pay very careful attention to implementation and policies around the use of incarceration. Um, it's not the end of the story. We don't solve the problem of racial bias and risk assessment by looking beyond algorithms and reaching for policy. But as we work to mitigate racial bias or disparate impact of risk assessment, again, while we're working to improve risk assessment, to hold ourselves accountable to the problems, to be transparent, right? Because there are some areas where the problem gets worse, right? In some jurisdictions, the algorithm sits behind a black box, right? We argue that your algorithm should be transparent. It should be clear, all the individuals involved in a proceeding, including the defendant, should understand what the algorithm looks at, what it measures, what the variables are. It should not be a secret formula that's only accessible to a data scientist behind a curtain. There are things that we can do in the short run to deal with those problems. Moreover, jurisdictions need to carefully track the performance of their risk assessment tools to make sure that if they're seeing disparate impact or other types of bias in the data, that they're attempting to respond and improve those things. There are other things we can reach for. Locally validated data, careful validation. Those are also tools. Again, we're not at a place now where anyone can say for sure, here's how we solve the problem. But I would argue that it's still premature. If the goal is to end mass incarceration in the United States, it's still premature to say risk assessment, it's run its course. We've seen the best of what it can do, and it's time to jettison the practice entirely. I think we sit in an uncomfortable, liminal space, and what we have to do is push ourselves to be more thoughtful, not only in the design of risk assessment, but in the careful, transparent, and judicious implementation of these tools across jurisdictions. Okay. I think if uh, someone who was an opponent of risk assessments were listening, they might quote this back at you from uh, another point in the book. Cultural change should be the ultimate goal of justice reform. And at its root, this means seeing the fundamental humanity of defendants. Are, is it fair to ask if risk assessments are inherently dehumanizing? It's, it's, it, it's an interesting question. I think 
I would start by saying that risk assessment, like a lot of reform strategies, are being introduced into a system that with precious few exceptions is dehumanizing. And to parse the distinction between the dehumanizing system context or cultural context that the tool is being or the strategy is being proposed and the strategy itself, I think it's fair to say that with precious few examples, some of which we highlight in the book, with precious few examples, the criminal justice system in the United States at this moment in time is thoroughly dehumanizing. And so it's challenging to parse the distinction between a thoroughly dehumanizing system and the extent to which a particular strategy um, is dehumanizing or is inherently or is dehumanizing because of its location within um, a system. I will say that um, we need to wrestle with that problem um, more carefully, but the intent or the purpose of risk assessment, as I understand it, and as most reformers understand it, is to reduce the use of incarceration and to attempt to mitigate um, what has been a biased system and one that's led to devastating consequences. Um, so as a strategy to that end, simply because risk assessments attempt to take information and make a prediction versus human actors like judges and others doing the same thing, except instead of using a standardized and accessible and um, transparent algorithm or are using discretion, which is always opaque and always beyond the view of a defendant or a defense attorney. I, I guess I don't know, but I think it's, I think it may, I, I, at least in my mind, it feels too soon to sort of make a ruling on that or to come down decidedly on that point. So perhaps what you're suggesting is the entire process of judging other human beings is dehumanizing. And we're trying, we're always going to have a struggle with trying to get that right. I, I think that's, I think that's, um, in there. I think the process of judging other human beings and, Again, the way that we think about justice, right? Justice need not be inherently dehumanizing. Um, in fact, you know, the famous thought experiment by John Rawls of the original position where individuals <clears throat> sit behind a veil of ignorance and don't know what their place in society will be and have to formulate principles of justice, that it is possible to create a just and fair system. And therefore, perhaps it's not inherently dehumanizing um, to judge other people. Again, I think that in the current paradigm, in the current state of affairs, it's just very hard epistemologically to think about what's humanizing or dehumanizing um, versus what might be humanizing or dehumanizing if we actually achieve a system that feels less punitive that is less punitive and that resorts to less incarceration and all the collateral damage that flows therefrom. 
Um, so I think it raises philosophical questions about what is justice and what does it mean to create a, a system that somehow accounts for that notion of justice um, without being dehumanizing or being as parsimonious in its dehumanization as possible to meet other societal goals and needs. Again, similar to your question about abolitionist perspectives on this, it feels wildly premature to me to go there. Okay. Uh, of course, as a former philosophy person, I want to jump right into the raw stuff, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to push myself away from that. Um, <clears throat> so we might have already answered, you might have already answered this question. Uh, but recently we had a string of events. Larry Krasner getting ec- uh, elected in Philadelphia, the closing of the creek in Philadelphia, and another dramatic change was New York City making phone calls from jail free. Is your argument that these are all the, uh, to some extent, the result of uh, long incremental processes and small successes built up over time? It's rare for criminal justice reform to happen overnight or for dramatic reforms to happen overnight. It doesn't mean that they don't happen. I think um, what Larry Krasner is doing in Philadelphia um, feels like something that while there was certainly a groundswell of support and based on my knowledge of that jurisdiction, quite comprehensive criminal justice reform efforts already underway before he was elected to office. Um, it still feels like what he's doing um, pushes past the incrementalist view to something that feels more revolutionary, more precipitous, more overnight. But again, query as to whether if there hadn't already been a lot of work on the ground in Philadelphia toward um, reducing the use of incarceration, reducing the use of jail, if there wasn't already a very heated debate about the use of risk assessment in that jurisdiction. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if it would have been as possible for him to be elected and then to um, accomplish what he's already accomplished in sh- such a short period of time. But I think we'll have a better sense in the years ahead. And I think it's an important case study to keep an eye on because perhaps it'll reveal how you make such dramatic changes, whether they are made in short order or whether we just don't see the incrementalism because it's sometimes takes some time and distance to really appreciate what sets things in motion. I think the New York example, I would chalk up to incrementalism. But again, we use the term radical incrementalism. We think it's um, misleading or oversimplistic to suggest that incrementalism is somehow not sufficiently radical, particularly when it's what's required to reach radical results that you couldn't otherwise obtain attain. Okay, so just a few more questions. Your book is called Start Here, but there's a lot of suggestions in the book. If every community could just start with one thing, what do you think that they should potentially start with to get the ball rolling? Um, <clears throat> I think it's very hard, um, which is why you're asking the question, to to generalize to that extent across jurisdictions. I think what I would say, if I had to answer the question, which I'll <laughs> assume I do, is, 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 is the following. I'm going to answer it. I think I have an answer. Every jurisdiction should map the major decision points along the criminal justice continuum, not just starting at police contact, because I said, as I said earlier, it should really start at the point of what can we do to, um, 
to work on community-based crime prevention, but I would map the major ones. We can quibble on what they are, but community-based crime prevention, police contact, arrest, assignment of counsel, pretrial decision-making, case processing, sentencing, and post-sentencing supervision. And what I would do is at every one of those points, I would say, what are all the opportunities at every one of these points to make a more humane decarcerative decision? (laughs) And what I imagine would happen in most places is there would appear a list of options or ideas that are not currently in practice, that are not part of the status quo, that would not necessarily solve the problem of over-incarceration or mass incarceration, but would immediately flip the switch in thinking about ways to work on decarceration at many decision points and to begin moving very quickly in that direction. I think in some jurisdictions that exercise becomes more challenging, um, particularly jurisdictions that have already been actively engaged in a lot of these exercises and are, are, are then trying to decide, well, what do we do with individuals who are still in jail once we've really done um, a thorough job of pursuing diversion? And, and that's where, again, I think we're going both in the book, we mentioned this, and I think in the field, I think we really need criminal justice reformers to bear down on this problem of we have too many folks behind bars who were, who were put there on VFOs, violent felony offense charges, but who, when we take a searching fact-specific, case-specific look, are individuals who we actually think would do well in the community, perhaps with supervision, perhaps with treatment, perhaps with nothing at all. And we need to have that reckoning and that conversation. And then beyond the scope of this book, but certainly relevant, I think we need to rethink conditions of confinement. I think the abolitionist argument... Um, is, if anything, a long-term approach. I don't think anyone's arguing that you could somehow move to an abolitionist state overnight. Most jails and prison environments are abominations and are inhumane. And so I do think we also need more reformers to be accountable, not just for what we do in the name of diversion or alternative sentencing, but what do we do when we make recourse to incarceration? And there I think we look both to Europe, but we can also look to places like San Diego and Las Colinas and facilities in the United States that are attempting to take more humane um, and arguably effective approaches to incarceration where incarceration is unavoidable. Yeah, I think it would be nice if we move more toward Las Colinas and less toward Joe Arpaio. Uh, Finally, I always ask all my guests this question last. Where did I mess up? What question would you like to answer that I never asked? I mean, I think the question, I keep going to this and I feel like you're not pushing me there, which I think is interesting because you're pushing me in ways that um, are consistent with it, right? I, you know, I keep throwing out this idea of we need to think more about violence and you haven't asked me about it. And you've sort of, maybe because it just seems like common sense to you. But I'm curious why you haven't pushed me at all on that. That's an interesting uh, response. I actually have done a bunch of episodes on the question of violence, and uh, it's something I've written about extensively. And so maybe you're right. It's something that's so obvious to me, I think, for a number of reasons, the first of which is that violence is generally defined by statute, not by action. Uh, the second that are, are the ones that you mentioned in the book, there's quite a few of them, uh, that I just 
I find that the way that we treat the binary between violence and nonviolence is very, um, uh, uh, it doesn't inform. And so I guess I was just so with you on those points of the book that I didn't answer. I didn't ask you many questions about it. So what would you say about uh, uh, what, what do we need in terms uh, to change the discussion on the question of the binary of violence versus nonviolence? So I think, I mean, because you've done a lot of work on the subject, I think you hit the nail on the head that um, at the current moment, violence is something that's defined by statute or largely by statute rather than based on underlying behavior. It's something that we address in the book. It's something that you've addressed in your work too. Um, I think the first step is to attempt to work on that problem um, because even if violence is defined by statute, there's still many opportunities for judges, prosecutors, defenders, police officers, probation officers, parole boards, etc., to exercise their discretion and take a more searching inquiry. So our system, though not always, always has a lot of room for discretion. And what I would describe as kind of that interstitial space between formal law or policy and the discretionary acts of individuals in the system or actors in the system, there's still a lot of room for system actors to exercise discretion. Not to suggest that system actors aren't constrained themselves, whether it's mandatory minimums, office policies, office incentives, public pressures, but that we need to inform and temper the exercise of discretion whether it's a prosecutor, a judge, et cetera, by a switch from statutorily defined violence to a searching inquiry into what happened. And normatively, do we think this is an appropriate, just outcome based on the facts of the case, um, the perspective of the victim, and um, you know, impact on the community? So I think in the very short run, start here, start by exercising discretion to ask those questions and not just make it a default assumption that if you are charged and convicted of a violent felony offense, incarceration is your destiny. We need to do better. And then from there, there are lots of other things that we might do. But I do think the first step is the move from the default logic to a more searching inquiry. And again, um, an appeal to humanity and a reckoning with the fact that individuals need not always be defined by the worst thing they ever did. Well, that's a great place to end. And I hope that everyone will read the book, Start Here, A Roadmap to the Reduction of Mass Incarceration. Uh, I'll make sure and include all of the information in the uh, show notes. Uh, so thanks so much for doing this, Julian. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been um, a really exciting and challenging conversation in the good sense. All right, man. It's good to talk to you, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, now my take. I pushed Julian pretty hard in that interview, despite the fact that we generally agree on tactics and often on strategy. I'm 100% for using whatever tools are most available and most likely to create change. If we are at a moment in time when radical incrementalism is possible, let's use those tools. If we have reached a moment in time 
or if in a particular jurisdiction where more radical reforms are possible, we have reached a time where we can do something more radical, let's follow the path of abolitionists. In other words, in the battle between reformers and abolitionists, I choose whichever one breaks the Overton window wider open and creates the most relief for the most incarcerated folks and their families in the least time. I believe in using the tools most likely to succeed in getting every ounce of reform that we can possibly get today and then returning to work to get more change tomorrow. Recently, in the battle to get what are really, and let's be honest, fairly modest prison and sentencing reforms passed, Senator Tom Cotton and our old nemesis Jeff Sessions started an organized campaign to mislead and scare the public into turning against and delaying this important and necessary legislation. The prison reforms in the First Step Act would only be available to people who were statistically considered low risk, would only be available to people who had earned enough good time credit to qualify, and would be extended only to people who had amassed a record of working hard to reform themselves in prison. But Senator Cotton still called it a jailbreak? The sentencing reforms in the First Step Act would reduce some drug mandatory minimums from, for instance, 25 to 15 years or make the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010's reduced ratio between crack and cocaine retroactive. And let's face it, the people who are still stuck in prison for long sentences based on the 100 to 1 ratio because the Fair Sentencing Act wasn't made retroactive in 2010 are some of the people suffering from one of the most racist laws we had on the books But the Justice Department and Senator Cotton are still telling President Trump that instead of changing this, he should watch out for a new Willie Horton. And look, we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that mandatory minimums have done more harm than good, and that the reductions in crime these folks attribute to tough-on-crime policies could have been reduced even further using diversion and other smart-on-crime alternatives. In fact, we know that they probably didn't cause as much reduction as they're claiming that they did, and that in the end result, prisons and jails, even accounting for incapacitation, create more violence than they solve. And yet these two persist in trying to scare people away from reform. In other words, we have a long way to go, which means Julian might be right. We might still be at a time when we need to respond to fear-mongering with a continued commitment to radical incrementalism until more is possible. I understand that some people will say that you have to push for more to get more. But if your push for incrementalism is radical and you continue to build on that, you are slowly opening the Overton window even further, in my opinion. At the same time, within our own caucus, we need to have these important and critical conversations about when and if, for instance, risk assessment tools, if ever, are worth including in reform, or when and if monitoring should be used, if ever, or how to best approach the problems of policing in our communities, uh, and so many other parts of our reform agenda that we have disagreements about within our caucus. We, remember, we, we may never have one unified voice, but it's probably important that we can present a unified front whenever it is really necessary. 
For instance, it might be criti of critical importance for all of us to oppose the poorly constructed Senate Bill 10 in California and call for the governor of California, Jerry Brown, to veto that legislation because it is very bad legislation. In this instance, it uses risk assessment tools that are poorly constructed and it makes it puts predicates in the place of risk assessment tools that are even more dangerous. We might need to be together to oppose that, even though there are certain little things that we disagree about within our caucus. At the same time, it's really important that we support other reforms, like the First Step Act compromise, which would actually combine prison reform and sentencing reform, and while modest, would have an immediate impact on thousands and thousands of prisoners and their families, which all of us believe should be the focus of reform. So let's get together and start working out our differences. And at the very least, when we do have disagreements, let's not become a circular firing squad. Let's let the disagreements exist so that reform can move forward. It is better to have these discussions internally instead of fighting against each other publicly during policy debates. We make each other infinitely weaker when we appear to be divided as a movement. This has been proven time and time again throughout history, and it's one of the ways in which movements get destroyed. Regardless, I strongly suggest that everyone reads Julian's book, Start Here. It is relatively short, and it's an easy read, but at the same time, it's a very important contribution to the literature calling for criminal justice reform in the United States. As always... You can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash onpiratesatellite. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. I also kind of find this fun, but I did this the other day, and you can actually just tell your phone to play Decarceration Nation, and it will. Uh, maybe it's because I grew up at a time when we still had rotary phones and computers were kept in uh, buildings instead of in rooms or houses or in backpacks, but I find this uh, fascinating. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.